you know, I would love for you to talk about how you navigate the traumatic, the, the really the trauma of what that is, because one of the things I think is really fascinating I've been sitting on recently is this idea that that trauma isn't necessarily just the stuff from 25 years ago, right? It's the stuff that happens today because it carries with it and it has weight. And I know right now that there are people listening who they have gone through this experience and with your expertise, what I'd love to know is like, how do parents navigate the trauma of these experiences and raising children and, and the whole thing? Well, it's not easy. We are all struggling to be good parents. And most working parents want to do a good job. I think where we fail most often is taking care of ourselves. I think that we've all been raised to work, to produce, to perform. And parenting is not like that. Parenting is more being present, listening, um, asking questions. I had to learn to settle down when I was around my kids. I had to learn to turn off that high stress, intensive care mind and enjoy bath time and reading books before time. I had to quit thinking about the research paper that I was behind on and enjoy dinner time and talking about their day at school. Um, so I think the simplest answer to your question is we try to do more work than is possible and we don't allow ourselves free time to be parents. Now, having said that, every now and then our kids are going to act up and we're going to respond to that. And whether we're tired or whether we're hungry, or whether we're um, uh, alone, whether we're stressed and fatigued, we're going to react in ways that we regret. And we are, as parents, are going to have to say, oh, wow, that is not what I wanted to do. I had to learn to do that. When I yelled at my kids, I always yelled when I was post-call, after a long night on call, I would come home. My husband was usually headed out the door to go work a Saturday or Sunday. And I was so tired and I had a short temper. And when I yelled at my kids, I instantly felt bad. I instantly knew that it was the wrong thing to do, even though that's how I was raised. And I would get myself together and I would tell my children that I, I was upset and I'm sorry, and I'm not going to do it again and please forgive me. And depending on the age of the child, I would explain uh, why that had happened. I also learned to help my children identify their emotions. I was really good at saying, you look angry. Can you tell me you're feeling angry? You're mad about something. Can you tell me that? My little granddaughter the other day was pouting and I said, Catherine, you look like you're pouting. 
does that mean you aren't getting your way? And she shook her head, yes. And I said, what does it mean when you're pouting? And she said, I know I get in trouble at school for pouting. I know it means I'm supposed to take turns. <laughs> so that kind of thing where you talk with your child about their feelings, where you say, um, you look frustrated, you look disappointed. Let's talk about it. That requires parents to be present, not on their phones, not on their computers. Um, they really have to be on the level with their kids, face to face, and um, talking about feelings, asking questions, and listening. And I think it took me a long time to learn that. I think it probably took me 10 years to figure that out. My husband was a much better listener than I was. He didn't always want to jump in and do something and fix it. That was my way of doing things. He would say, okay, what's going on? Okay, let's think about it. What do you think? And what are we going to do? And, and he would talk about it and the kids would open up. And so... I learned by watching him be more laid back, more flexible, that really what they needed was to be attended to, listened to, stood by. You know, attending really means being there for. <laughs> and so attending physicians are there at the bedside for their patients. And parents attend to their children in the same way. One of the it's things I'm easy. curious about, Susan, is, um, and I, I apologize, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I wanted to come back to this before before we lost it, because I think it's really, really important. One of the things that you mentioned was yelling and talking mm -hmm. about, like, that is how you were raised. And I know that right now there is such a beautiful movement to end generational trauma by breaking that cycle. And I know that there are people listening right now who they will still tend to move towards the behaviors that they grew up with. And they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to navigate it. They're trying to end that. Do you have any thoughts about how you reconcile that, that moment with yourself to give yourself compassion or grace or forgiveness, but also to, to end the continuation of it? I, I think this is a really important topic that yes. is happening right now. And we're seeing it all the time. Yes, it is important. And I'm glad you brought it up. Yelling is bad enough. Uh, and I grew up in a household with a rageaholic father and I got hit a lot. And um, I swore that I was not gonna hit my children. When my son was 18 months old, I came home from a difficult call shift and I think we had lost a baby and I was exhausted and my husband had to leave to go to work and I just got home. and. My little toddler was playing and I was waiting for him to take a nap and he wouldn't go to sleep. And I was just so exhausted and so grouchy. And um, I, I was forcing him to take a nap and he wasn't ready. And I pushed him down on the bed and I started spanking his little thighs. And I kind of went outside my body. I went outside myself and I stopped. And I went, oh, my God, I am hitting my son. I love this kid. I love this little boy. What am I doing? I burst into tears. I grabbed him and held him. 
and said, I'm not going to let this happen to my family. I cannot let this happen. This is what happened to me. I'm not doing this. The next day, or I think it was Monday, that was a Saturday, I called and got an appointment with a, a child psychologist. I told her the story and I began therapy. And we talked about my childhood of physical and emotional abuse. And I learned how to not listen to those tapes. I learned how to not hit. I would put myself in time out if I had to. I would go to another room and settle down if I had to. I um, had a hard time with yelling. I did not perfect not yelling at my children, but I did not hit my children. And, and I remember talking to a psychiatrist later on in my adult life about um, my efforts to get rid of child abuse from my family. And he said, well, you got rid of the physical abuse and maybe the next generation will get rid of the yelling. I said, really, Does it, is it that hard? He said, sometimes it takes more than one generation to get rid of the habits of child abuse. But I felt over the years like I had grown to forgive myself because I had an abnormal childhood to allow myself a little bit of grace. Okay, you got beat up when you were a kid. It's a lot to not want to hit your kids. And every now and then, if you snap and yell at them, you're not a bad mother. You just snapped and yelled at your kids. So I learned to forgive myself. I had psychotherapy to help me. I think this is a very difficult thing to do. I'm not sure that the average person who has been abused who's raising kids, can do it all on their own. I highly recommend psychotherapy for people who have been abused as children and then they become parents. They will inevitably have um, a trigger from some childhood developmental moment in their children that will remind them of things that were done to them when they were kids. We know that happens. Um, and so having a therapist help you walk through these um, experiences is very important. It helped me a lot. And um, I learned to forgive myself. I learned to tell them, you know, mommy has a problem with yelling. I'm sorry. Um, I lost my temper and please forgive me. And they, they all kind of got it. Over the years, they knew that I was temperamental and impulsive. And if I was tired, they needed to leave me alone until I had a nap. <laughs> so <clears throat> the whole family can help break the cycle of child abuse, um, whether it's yelling or hitting or emotional neglect or emotional abuse. The whole family can help. Now, I had to involve my husband, too. He had to know what had happened to me and why I was struggling so much to make a change. He needed to understand that. He could give me a look, and, and that look meant go in another room and settle down. And so I learned that he was my ally. 
he helped me recognize when I was overdone, when I was too stressed or too tired or needed to hand off the problem to him. <clears throat> so what I'm saying is that it's a difficult process to do. Most of us can't do it alone. Most of us need some sort of professional therapy. And for sure, our spouses and partners need to understand what we've been through and what we're trying to accomplish. Um, I think parents need to expect that their children are going to trigger them in ways that take them back to childhood experiences. Right. One of the things I think is important, and not necessarily just whether or not it's in therapy or prescription drugs or anything, but life in general is like trying to understand your core values when it comes to healing. Yes. Because I think I think healing is all of these three elements that you talk about. How does one understand, you know, what it is that they know and what they're trying to understand? about well, who they are and their core values? It's a great question. There's three stories that I believe we're always trying to negotiate. And this is what I've observed from working with patients, specifically cancer patients. There's three stories we're always trying to negotiate. And that's that story that of design, right? Laws of nature, things that are self-evident and speak to our natural affections. There's this story that says something inside of me wants to live, right? And we have an anatomy that bears witness of that. And then there's a story that we tell ourselves from our experiences in our soul, our mind, our heart, our will, our conscience, our feelings. There's that narrative we're always trying to negotiate. And then there's a story that we carry in our DNA. Our stories don't begin at home. They begin in the home of the home of the home of our parents' parents' parents. So three, four generations deep, there's a work of recall healing and Dr. Hammer from German New Medicine expounded upon by Dr. Gilbert Renald, recall healing, that really speaks in powerful ways to that. So there's a story of, that, of our very constitution substantiated and well explained by laws of nature, things that are self-evident again and speak to our natural affection. There's the stories we tell ourselves from our experiences and the ideas and the thoughts that we got from our families of origin and our experiences. By the way, starting from conception, right? And in the womb and our first formative years of life and throughout. And then the stories of our anatomies. And I think reconciling those three stories is where we find incredible freedom. For example, with you, Michael, something in you knew intuitively that, oh, I don't know, this isn't right. So you used all kinds of means and methods, right, and resources to silence that, to mitigate that, to reconcile that. And they weren't productive. So at some point, you decided, you know what, this is not for me. So I'm going to just bring an end to it all. And somehow, as providence would have it, you know, you weren't successful in that attempt. Call it whatever you want, divine intervention, chance, accident. I think it's because look what you're doing now. I think it was divine intervention personally. But then you have, these, you have the reality 
of the heritage that you bring to bear and the legitimate experiences that you that are in your tissue. The issues are always in the tissue, right? Tissues, and that that are very real, and the disparity between this hunger of your soul, this thing of what's happening in my life, right? That you're negotiating through these experiences you have and the trauma that you're bringing in from these generational patterns, right? The disparity between those things is where we find the anatomy of disease and addictions and all these things. So what happened at some point, you reached bottom. And I love how you address that and you talk about the reaching rock bottom. That rock bottom is really a beautiful and wonderful and great place to be. And we were talking about this a little bit ago because there's nowhere else to go but up. If you can just accept that, hey, this is rock bottom for me, whatever that is for you, individual, or for a listening audience, if you can recognize, hey, there's only one other place I can go from here, and that's up, right? Because I can't get any lower than this. We all have different margins, right? But then you begin to decide, you begin to choose, you begin to dig, you begin to learn, you begin to turn every stone, you begin to reach out. Like you were talking about earlier, looking for mentors, looking for information. We have the web now, we have the internet, we have YouTube, we have amazing resources at our disposal. We have amazing counseling, amazing podcasts to listen to. So there is no excuse why we have to give in to the disparity of whatever situation we find ourselves in. Nobody takes our life from us. We give it away. Yeah. And and what I'm curious about, I had this thought, just this question just popped into mind. What do you think is the biggest misnomer or misconception that people have about their own mental health? That it's inherited that there's no way out without medication, that they're the victims of circumstances. I think the biggest, I think the most tragic bit of information that people believe are the lies of why they find themselves in the situations they find themselves. I think people don't realize how powerful they are. I think people do not understand that thoughts have power and words have authority. It's one thing to have thoughts that are limited, but it's another thing to begin to speak them into being. Words have power. Thoughts have power. Words have authority. We have to be very careful about the things we speak. We're better off asking questions, seeking information to get us out of situations that we find ourselves in than we are to get together with a friend over a beer or a glass of wine and continue to complain or we have very sophisticated ways of complaining, right? Fancy and sophisticated ways of complaining, but it's tragic because those would seem like nominal conversations are relatively insignificant, just shooting the breeze with somebody. They have devastating consequences in your entire constitution and in your life. 
We'll be right back to today's show. But first, I need to ask you a question. Are you feeling stuck? Are you feeling like you don't have the support to go to the next level in your healing journey? Are you feeling like you wish you had a little bit more support from not only myself, but the Unbroken Nation? Well, my friend, I want to invite you to come and join our live weekly coaching sessions in Think Unbroken. All you have to do is go to keys, K-E-Y-S, keys.thinkunbroken.com to sign up and join us today with 100% money back, no questions asked, guaranteed and no contract or commitment every week for the next year. You can come and be a part of our live coaching sessions each Monday as we dive deep into not only answering your questions, but questions from the unbroken nation and help you take all of the information that you learn in the podcast, in the courses and other areas of this journey, bring them into your life and use it in a way that is practical, life-changing and transformative. So my friend, join us at keys.thinkunbroken.com. And we will see you this Monday. I would love to know what those are because like knowing that this is primarily something that is a conversation geared towards mental health. How do you know? Cause I think there's red flags that you may notice within yourself that could be a causation of going, okay, there might be something here about me that I actually really need to like sess out. What, mm-hmm. what would you consider to be a red flag? Oh, from, uh, From a patient standpoint, I would say maybe multiple joint pain, like it may not seem like a big deal, but just like some overall stiffness. So people with anxiety and often in depression too, will really be limited at their necks. And so there'll be some limited neck range of motion, but it's not, um, but that in itself is not uh, necessarily a red flag. It's really about the combination of things. So if your neck is tight and you're feeling like it can be hard to get a breath or like you have times where you're uh, short of breath and you're otherwise healthy, you're not somebody that has asthma or you know, you're too young for and healthy for heart disease. You know, this is a difficult, uh, I'll say, I haven't really framed it this way. I take people, I know what we're on video. I could take people, I could, uh, uh, I can demonstrate some of the tests, you know, like the self-assessment that I have people go through, but it's really, um, it, it's really about how you rotate. So it can be as simple as turning your head side to side and seeing how far you can go. If you turn your head if you can turn your head comfortably to one side and then bring your ear towards your chest in that position, you should go be able to flex forward 45 or 50 degrees. If you hit a brick wall right at the top and you can barely bring your ear towards your chest, that would be one small red flag or maybe one yellow flag. And then if you're looking at shoulder motion, like I, you can put your, if you put your arms up like goalposts and rotate them down, you should be able to go about 70 degrees on each side, you know, and without bringing your shoulder blades up over the tops of your shoulders. And if you're, if you're not able to, you know, if you're only rotating 20 or 30 degrees down and you don't have any shoulder pathology going on, I would consider that another red flag. If you give yourself a hug, and with your weight really even on your sit bones and turn your, uh, rotate your body side to side, you should be able to go at least 45 degrees 
60 degrees is considered normal, but I don't fuss too hard over 45 degrees. But if you are really having a hard time rotating in uh, those directions, that um, that is one way. The the perhaps the easiest way to really uh, self-assess this though is is through breath. And so even if you just put one hand, I'll have you do this, and you can tell me how you feel with it. But if you put one hand on your over your heart. And take the other hand and uh, try to put it uh, on the back side of your ribs. If you can get it to the back side of your heart, that's great. So just like the back side of your hand, and take a deep breath. Take a couple deep breaths in that position. And tell me. Uh, so do you feel how your ribs yeah, move your hand on the front of your chest yes. when you breathe? Mm -hmm. What happens to your ribs on the back with your back hand? They're also moving. Okay, good. So a lot of people don't expand their ribs on the backside of their chest at all, like on yeah, the backside of their ribs. Shallow breathing, right? And so it's, it is. It's shallow breathing. It's it's upper chest breathing, and it's and it's no back breathing at all. So the way that I discovered that, for lack of a better term, my vagus nerve was out of whack was because I actually could not take a diaphragmatic breath, mm -hmm. meaning the biggest breath that I could took was let could take, excuse me, was less than two seconds as an inhale. And in that time, it freaked me out really bad because I knew that I was under this immense amount of stress. And I knew that my life was kind of chaotic at the time. And I just uprooted myself and I travel across the world. And I was in this place where I was new and unfamiliar and stepping into a new trajectory and understanding and working through and navigating trauma. And I recognized one day, I was like, I can't breathe. And it was one of the most terrifying experiences that I had. On the backside of that, it lasted for seven months. So someone listening right now, I know without question cannot take that breath. And all of the signs just based off of the self-assessment probably point to the idea that something is awry. How do you step into this place where you start to rectify and get back to what we would call normality or baseline in consideration of our human body? At the very basic level, I believe it's, you know, I think one, you, you, there are very simple exercise, breathing exercises you can do to give your vagus nerve more space and really just paying attention to your breath, practicing breathing uh, can be a huge thing. I just tie, going back quickly to what you were saying about your limitation inhaling. I guess for me that shows up more. I note more limitations exhaling. I, I mm -hmm. time people's, I find people's exhalations because they're um, uh, like their, uh, their lungs are overinflated. I th think it's at some level, but I, in, I, at the, in terms of just getting, uh, the first step is really just to have a conversation with your body and to learn how your body says yes and how your body says no, because by the time you're in any kind of physical pain or anxiety, uh, or trauma response, your body is screaming no. And we do not have a language for communicating with our bodies. And I think really just tapping in and knowing that you're, 
you know, and not dismissing your body as, um, you know, your mind is a very slippery liar. Your body really holds your truth. There is a moment in which you have to understand that it's actually not your fault. Mm -hmm. and remove the blame that you give yourself because without doing so, you carry that burden with you. And I think that is often the boundary between stepping into something that can be powerful in a healing journey and being mm -hmm. stuck in that place where you feel like the world is against you. And that's such a battle. How do you begin to transform your own understanding of fault and blame and responsibility when you have been hurt in childhood? Mm-hmm. I think, so we hear this often, what you're saying, we need to um, not carry it with us anymore. And what you often hear is, you know, the society, social media, which is very concerning, is telling us to heal because everyone wants to heal. It's the whole, whole trend and, and, and also a healthy trend, of course, to a degree. Um, you need to forgive as well. And that will, uh, with that, we bypass uh, healing. That is very concerning. Because when we forgive too soon without the acknowledgement of what was done to us, first of all, you cannot really forgive because to, uh, to forgive, we need to have self-compassion. Self-compassion we can only have when we acknowledge, it's not necessarily our parents who has to acknowledge it as long as we, or I don't know, with the therapist acknowledges what happened to you. Um, uh, only then we can have self-compassion and then we can forgive. But we need to go to those situations that, that the, the, the childhood, and that is complicated. That's why I also created a Heal Your Inner Child online course for people to understand. I give specific examples of what can go wrong. And you're mentioning now a couple of things. If you were sexually abused or you, was, you were beaten, etc. So these at least, I'm not saying that it makes it more easy, but at least were visible things that happened as, as a child. At least. But I have a lot of clients, high functioning, with the amazing parents who are still together. And they haven't had a connection in their whole life. They're living in prison because they were manipulated by narcissistic dynamics, et cetera, for instance. And that is much more complex. Um, so people, it would be amazing if with social media, we could go more specifically to childhood situations and people could start identifying uh, situations. For instance, I have a client, uh, I, I used to have a client, and uh, he, he said my childhood was great, everything was great. And then when we go deeper, turns out that, that uh, the, the parent was very selfish. And so now um, he doesn't trust people. We need to acknowledge all these things uh, because often, for instance, another example, Mike, I'm not sure if you've heard it, uh, heard this one. I hear this often with people around me. Um, my mother is just difficult. She's, she, she means well. She's just anxious, being anxious, okay? She was just overprotective. Well, I don't agree with that. She might've been anxious, but apparently she's selfish to not take her problems to a psychologist and to burden you with worrying about her. And you should be a child. You should be worrying about your, yourself. You should not be worrying about your parents. And that is traumatic. If you need to comfort your parents, that is not okay. It's robbing your childhood, et cetera. It has a lot of implications, but people are not aware of that. This is just an example. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And, and a lot of that can be covert. You just don't see it, but it doesn't yes. mean it's not there. 
Yes. As, as people are starting to recognize this, and, and more so and more so, because now we're having conversations with words like narcissism, words we yes. haven't used before. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. looking at that and stepping into it, now understanding we, in order to continue to step into this path of healing, need to create boundaries and understanding around our wants, needs, interests, and values, so on and so forth. What I'm curious about from, from your perspective is what role does having boundaries in your life play in the healing journey? Um, so yeah, I, I, I came up with this, uh, this healing uh, steps. So you have uh, step one of acknowledging I'm wounded in the first place because a lot of people are in denial. Uh, I'm wounded, I'm actually surviving, not thriving. And uh, the other one is connecting to your emotions. Uh, the other one is creating your emotional home, your safe haven. The fourth one is the healing the wound, acknowledging what was done to us to be able to get the self-compassion and create self-worth. Fifth one is the relationships you need to repair. So the emotional home is about we need you. Are, I suppose that you're living in a house with a roof over your head, assuming most people do. There is a reason you want protection. You want someone to be to retreat to, to be able to restore your energy, to reflect, to, you know, to be safe, literally. So a lot of people with trauma don't have an emotional home. We forget that, that, that we need one. An emotional home is your own safe haven. The, that's the space, you, the place you go to, uh, an emotional place in this case, uh, um, where you feel safe. But with, especially with trauma, when you have this inner critic, because you yet not have acknowledged what was done to you, so all the, the blame goes towards ourselves. we're beating ourselves up as inner critic and the shame that can be killing. A lot of people out there with, who experience shame know, know how, how hectic that, that emotion is. And we need to heal. I think it was a beautiful sentence in um, Pete Walker's book uh, as well, uh, From Surviving to Thriving we need to take our own side and that's that's that so we need to protect our we need to have our home and your question was about boundaries well the door in a home is is a boundary right if there's bad people i assume you close the door you're not opening the door is that correct yeah of course but a lot of people if they have a home they don't have doors and they everything comes in and it's unsafe and that is boundaries. We need to have a home and we need to have doors and to close them. Hey, Unbroken Nation, we'll be right back to the show, but I wanted to let you know that you can grab a copy of my first book, Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma for free. If you go to book.thinkunbroken.com, you can download the PDF ebook version of the book and get everything that I know about the baseline of healing trauma for free downloaded to your email right now. Just go to book.thinkunbroken.com to download your copy of Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma for a PDF for your phone. Again, that is book.thinkunbroken.com. Thank you so much for listening to Think Unbroken. Please share this episode with someone who could use it and help us move forward in our mission of ending generational trauma in our lifetime. And if you would, please take five seconds to pop on iTunes or Spotify, hit that five star, leave a review. And you can also reach out to us on social at Michael Unbroken or at Think Unbroken. And of course, you can check out our YouTube channel at Think Unbroken. Thank you for being a part of Unbroken Nation, my friends. And until next time, be unbroken.